a number of the commentators I read, and some of them are very, very scholar, scholarly fellows, say it's really important in the study of Christianity, and that's what we're doing in the New Testament, to understand what's going on in Judaism at the time and to understand more fully what Judaism is actually talking. Now, I've covered some of these points before in the past, but I will be covering them again. And I think that happens a lot when we study Scripture, that there's a lot of repetition. It, uh, we cover things once or twice or three times, so we will be doing that again today with a little bit of Jewish history. Earlier in our study in Acts, the names of the early great rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, came up. And now, we didn't really talk about Shammai very much. Uh, we've got a little bit more about Shammai today. But I talked a great deal about Hillel and his family line. Hillel himself lived in the great time of turmoil in Israel. Hillel was born in Babylon, so he was one of the Babylonian Talmud scholars of his time. I've explained before that when the Jews were exported in 700 BC to Babylon, they did not know if they could sell, if they could worship God outside of Israel. Everybody else had a tribal god. Was God of the Jews just a tribal god to be to be worshipped only in Israel. And because they had already had a 800-year history with worshipping God, before they were deported, they sent to Jerusalem to find out from the Jerusalem Hebrew scholars whether or not God could, in fact, be worshipped outside of Israel. The answer came back, yes. However, because there was a shortage of teachers in Babylon, between the Jerusalem Jewish scholars and the Babylonian ones, they came up with two Talmuds. And Talmuds is really, it's more than a commentary, but it's less than scripture. The Talmud is, is Jewish scholars opining on what God's word means. Commentary of a sort. Also, it became the basis for Jewish ceremonial law, uh, Jewish, I'd say secular law, the way you're supposed to live. And Hillel was one of these Babylonian Talmud scholars. But wanting to study it further, he moved to Jerusalem and took up with the teachers of the Torah. Now, Hillel was from a family so poor that he often couldn't afford the fees for his education. But because he was so great a scholar, they waived the fees, not only for him, but for anybody else studying the Torah. He was not made an exception. The exception was made for him. But it applied to everybody studying Judaism. Hillel became the greatest rabbi in the history of Judaism. Save Jesus. That's my own addition to this. 
He is known today as Hillel the Great. His son, Saman, was also a respected rabbi and worked in the temple. Luke 2, 25-35 tells of a Simeon. And when the Bible uses names, pay attention to the names, because I look up the names to see who's being talked about. But Luke 2, 25-35 tells of a Simeon, who was often in the temple, called a just and devout man, who blessed the baby Jesus when Joseph and Mary brought him to the temple for his presentation. And it reads this way, it's just a quick reading, but and you should be familiar with it. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, knowing what I do about how Luke presents history, also that there really are no coincidences in God's history of peoples, I see no reason myself, and this isn't hard and fast, I see no reason to doubt that this righteous man named Simeon in the temple daily was Hillel's son. And Hillel's grandson, Simeon's son, was Gamaliel. And I've spoken at length about Gamaliel, who was president of the Sanhedrin, when he argued for Peter when his life was on trial before that body. So we have looked at Hillel's family in depth, but treated the other great rabbi contemporaneous with him, and it's roughly contemporaneous. We have treated the other great rabbi very briefly, and his name was Shammai. And when we say that he was the other great rabbi contemporary with Hillel, here's why I hedge that a little bit. Hillel was born in 10 B.C. Now think about that. He's born in 10 B.C. And yet, he was alive when Jesus was presented at the temple also. He lived until 10 A.D. He lived to be 120 years old. Shammai. When Shammai was born, Hillel was already 50 years old. And so their careers were together basically from the time that Hillel was 80 to 110, okay? So they were there together for, uh, for 30 years, and they took two different views on the law of God and how it was to be obeyed. While Hillel was both gentle and liberal in his approach to keeping the law and mainly that was because well 
I think it was because he grew up in the Gentile land of Babylon and had to get along with Gentiles his entire life. Because of that reason, he was understanding of them when they wanted to become either God-fearers or proselytes to Judaism. Hillel welcomed them. Shammai, on the other hand, was strict. Uh, Shammai was of the school that you have to obey every jot and tittle of the law to be recognized as righteous. Shammai succeeded Hillel as president of the Sanhedrin when when Hillel grew to be too old for the position. They don't give a date. I'm assuming it's around the year Jesus was born. Shammai, Shammai succeeded as head of the Sanhedrin. So the, the way Jewish law was interpreted for the entirety of Jesus' life was the Shammai way and not the Hillel way. It was these strengthened laws against the Gentiles that were broken by Paul and Barnabas on their outreach to the pagans on their missionary trip. The concern in Jerusalem was the concern of these broken laws was the reason that this delegation was brought from Syrian Antioch to the apostles and disciples of the mother church in Jerusalem. The dispute between Hillel and Shammai was also the dispute between the Jewish laws of the Jerusalem church and the outreach to the Gentiles of the Syrian Antioch church, which was a mixed church of Gentile and Jew. Now, Shammai was a native of Judea, much greater, stricter view of keeping the law. And as we go to our study in Acts, Keep the law of God and how it is applied in your minds because we will be getting back to there. Today's passage is Acts 15, 6 through 11. So it's just five verses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth... The Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Upon the return of Paul and Barnabas from their first missionary journey, you'll remember that after putting their report to the church in Syrian Antioch from which they had gone out on that mission, some had come down 
from Jerusalem. They were called the uh, party of the Philistines. They had come down from Jerusalem from the Hebrew church there. Last week we read, when they arrived and gathered at the church, they declared all that God had done with them and how they had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were therefore appointed to go to Jerusalem. Uh, The Apostle Peter was apparently among the group who traveled from Antioch to Syria. And we we know that he had been in Antioch because Paul had reported to the uh, Galatians that he had just come back from, that, that he had opposed Peter, who had started not associating with the Gentiles, but on the side of the Judaizers. In that letter, Paul pointed out how he had uh, opposed him. Though scripture does not explicitly state that Peter came with Paul, Barnabas, and the others, uh, designated by the church at Antioch, Peter, like I say, was in Antioch, and our passage today finds him in Jerusalem. And verse 6 said specifically that when the delegation from Antioch arrived in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, from the very beginning of the church, right here, down to this day, 2,000 years later, the method of the leaders of the church meeting together to consider matters of importance to the church continues. We've done this all through history. The churches get together two weeks. We have a, called a messenger's meeting. Messenger means angel. Angel means messenger. We have our messenger meeting. I will be attending it for our association of churches. A main item on our agenda is going to be to consider admitting into membership Course Gold Reformed Fellowship. And that's pastored by our former pastor, Alan Harris, here. And uh, he is now asking for admittance into our fellowship. Of concern to our association was whether a congregation located 250 miles away could actively engage in church matters on a regular basis. It is important to the members of churches that we are close enough. If an emergency comes up, furthest I have to go to away is the Sentinella Church in the other side of La Mirada. So, you know, it's an hour and a half drive. We can get together. Everybody in our, uh, in our association can get together in about an hour and a half's notice if we have to, to consider matters of importance. And um, it has been up to Alan Harris to assure people that he will do the same, even though he has a further drive, a four or five hour drive. Such is the importance of agreement between like-minded churches. And it's written even larger between those two first two big churches, the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church. Now, Scarb has just 11 churches, soon to be 12. Consider now the Southern Baptist Convention, if you will. And I looked up the numbers. The Southern Baptist Convention, which just recently completed their, it's called the convention for a reason, their meeting, uh, consists of 
47,400 some churches, I think it was 486, 47,400 churches uh, and the meeting of minds takes place at their annual meeting. They get together once a year to decide things. These meetings have uh, recently taken up the issue of ordaining of women pastors and the subsequent expulsion of possibly its largest member church, Saddleback Community Church. And when I say expulsion, you know, when churches of like mind get together, you're doing it because you're of like mind. If you suddenly to do something, decide to do something that is completely off the charts, for instance, of the Southern Baptist Convention and, and ordaining women... What you've actually done is said, I don't want to be part of this group anymore. That is what happens on this. The action was debated for several years in an attempt to keep the Southern Baptist Church theologically orthodox. And that is what is exactly taking place at this first church council between these two churches. They're trying to be theologically orthodox. And what does theological orthodoxy mean at the beginning of Christianity? And this is going to set the template for all the rest of the church. And this matter is the matter of Jewish versus Gentile conversions to Christ. And that's very important. A Jewish Christian, of course, had been a Jew. When they then believed in Christ, they saw it as a fulfillment, the completion of their Jewish faith. But a Gentile convert? A Gentile convert was, to a Jew, a despised pagan until the day that they became a Christian. A Jew would not eat with a Christian or with a pagan or enter their house or have a pagan enter their house they must, to the Jewish mind, first convert to Judaism. They must be circumcised and they must submit to the law. And so, verse 6 says, the apostles and elders gathered together to consider this most important matter. Verse 7a says, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them. Now, I think it would be safe to say that the debate, especially if Paul was among the debaters, was very heated. After all, those who were Jewish Christians still considered them to be Jews first, and then Christians. They clung to their Jewishness. Their identity was wrapped up in that very Jewishness. Everything that they had ever done was done in the name of God from a Jewish standpoint. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, did not cling to their paganness. Okay? They put their paganness completely aside. Completely aside. Instead, they shed their false beliefs and proudly put on their covering of Christianity. In contrast to the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem, they did not identify themselves as pagan Christians. They were Christians first and only. Knowing this, Peter stands up to speak. Now, Peter had been effectively challenged by Paul. 
well, effectively, and never mind. He had been challenged by Paul of hypocrisy and bowing to the Judaizers who had come to Antioch. But in right reality, and a lot of people make this point, he may have done what he did in, in withdrawing from the Gentiles and eating with the Judaizers to keep peace with a weaker brother. And a lot of people say that be, because these Jews from Jerusalem could not see this, he pulled aside, sat down with the weaker brothers to bring them into accordance with the new reality of Christianity. I do not know which is true. We do know that Paul thought that uh, uh, there was hypocrisy on Peter's part. And it is in scripture. And I will hang with that. I'm just saying that people wonder about what actually happened. And while Paul deferred to weaker brothers in matters such as eating meat sacrificed to idols, like in the Corinthian church, uh, he said, you know, I can eat meat or I can not eat meat, and uh, there's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols, but if it bothers a weaker brother, I will not do so. And though he would do it on those matters, he did not do so in matters of theological importance, which is why Paul corrected Peter. And if the Apostle Peter had a lesson to learn, when he stood up to speak at this meeting, he proved that he had learned it. He was not under any false delusion when he spoke this day. He says, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. It's funny to hear him speak about in the early days. Well, it was 11 years previous, okay? To us, you know, the early days, the early days. But to Paul, Peter is talking about 11 years previously when he had gone to Cornelius. They knew that God had chosen him to speak so that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, the Apostle Peter was no longer the leader of the Jerusalem church as he had been for a number of years. He has now gone on to a missionary career within the church. Uh, The position of leader of the Jerusalem church was filled by James, the half-brother of Jesus, known, and this is a really good way to be known, as James the Just. He He was universally known as James the Just, and there was a reason for this. After the lengthy debate between the two churches, Peter has stood up, reminded the Jerusalem church that in the early days, God had chosen his mouth to bring the gospel of Jesus to Gentiles and nations to believe and repent, and says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. The result of his ministry to the nations was was God, as the prophets had foretold, sent his spirit to the Gentiles just as he had given it to the believers in the infant church at Pentecost. It was the same spirit given to start the church that was given to bring Gentiles into it. There was no difference in God's outreach and salvation between Jew and Gentile. 
And it was Peter that God used. Peter was among the earliest of Jesus' disciples. Peter, the closest, one of the closest and most trusted of Jesus' longtime friends, was the one that was used to bring the message. It was not Paul originally, the persecutor of the church. It wasn't even Philip. Well, Philip and Peter were about the same time bringing the word to the Gentiles. But he used Peter, who nobody could accuse of doing anything contrary to the will of God in the name of Jesus Christ. The Jerusalem church not only knew and approved of Peter's ministry, but had fully approved of the Christians Peter had baptized in Caesarea. And they realized also, as Peter continued in verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. They have been cleansed. Their hearts have been cleansed by faith. Who God has called clean, can anyone else call unclean? To do so would be to call God a liar. And now in verse 10, Peter gets to the whole point of God giving law to the Jews. Comes down to this. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? And think about that. They're putting God to the test. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Peter makes the point that requiring Gentiles to convert, uh, who convert to Christianity to be subject to circumcision in God's law when God himself didn't require it before giving them the Spirit was in fact putting man's requirements beyond God's requirements. What have the Jews been doing throughout their history? God gave them ten, the Ten Commandments. I was just listening to Dennis Prager who said, actually, the word used is not commandments in the Old Testament, it's statements. God made ten statements. Ten statements came down. But the Jews then made up any number of other laws to go along with God's laws. They, the Gentiles were criticized because of ceremonial law, largely. That they didn't eat what the Jews ate. That they didn't follow the uh, kosher laws of keeping separate plates for separate things. But these were Some were God's commandments, not suggestions, statements, but some were just the Jews dealing with society, making things up. And they were not able themselves to keep all of these laws. They proved themselves incapable. And so how could they then make formerly pagan Gentiles keep them? If they themselves could not keep them, how could they possibly expect new converts to Christianity from the Gentile nations to do it? Were they supposed to pretend to keep the laws? Were they supposed to go through the motions as the Israelites did for a thousand years? Very few Jewish scholars even understood 
the finer points of all the Jewish law. And uh, what somebody pointed out here is that Saul of Tarsus was one of the very few men in all of history who could claim, oh, as F.F. F. Bruce said, to have fulfilled the detailed requirements of the written and oral law. The Apostle Paul had already done that. And yet, Paul found even that brought him no peace of conscience. Even keeping the law and, and understanding every point of the law did not bring him peace. Reformed pastors teach that the purpose of the law, and I'm not saying only reformed pastors, but this is where I've heard it, that the purpose of the law was to show that no man could keep them. The law could not provide salvation. Only a savior could. The law did not give salvation. It pointed you toward the one who could. The yoke of the law could save nothing. And commentators turn themselves over saying, well, all through scripture, it's the yoke of the law is used as a good thing. Well, maybe it was through a lot of the Old Testament, but clearly here, Peter is not saying that the yoke of the law is a good thing. When he says that, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That is not a good thing. He is showing that the law is not the way to go. Verse 11 says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Here Peter flips around the formula just a little bit. The Jews will be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone, not through the law, not through circumcision, not from being the chosen people of God, but by grace alone, just as the formerly godless pagans of the Gentile nations have been already. Today, we call it grace alone, by faith alone. And verse 12 concludes our passage for today. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When Peter finished speaking, there wasn't a whole lot left to say for those who were opposing the mission to the Gentiles. God had obviously brought his kingdom to the Gentiles without making them conform to Jewish law, first with Philip among the Samaritans, then with Paul among the Cornelius and the Roman soldiers and his family. And now, with Paul's direct outreach to the Galatians. All that was left now, as they say, was the shouting. And those assembled listened as Paul and Barnabas did just that, telling them of the signs, wonders, and miracles God had done through them while they were ministering to the nation. So, with all the turmoil that Judaizers caused in the early church, how much really 
Did the Jews of the first century care about the necessity of keeping the law? How much did that really, really matter to them? I've mentioned the two great rabbis of the time, Hillel and Shammai. Those two rabbis drew adherents of like minds. And so they talk about the school or the um, bait. The bait Hillel is a school of Hillel or the bait Shammai is a school. And it's just the people who are on one side or the other down through history. The bait Hillel, the school of Hillel, followed the liberal, less diligent approach to keeping the law. Hillel, who knew no one could keep all of the law, said basically that if, and when I say basically, it's a school that says this, that if one could keep the majority of the law, they could be considered righteous. The majority of the law. Now, when I think of the majority of the law, I sort of go to like 75, 80% of the law, you know, the majority. That's not what the school of Hillel thought. They thought you should keep 50% of the laws plus one, okay? That would make you, that would make you righteous to keep half the law. So they already knew in the school of Hillel that nobody was going to keep the law. The school of Shammai, the Bet Shammai, however, believed every jot and tittle of every law needed to be kept to be righteous before God. Now, the ideas of Hillel held sway in Jerusalem from, let's say, 70 B.C. uh, to the rabbi's death in 10 A.D. And I put it back around uh, 1 A.D., but we don't really know. Shammai then took over as the president of the Sanhedrin, uh, his more stringent, belligerent form of Judaism informed the times of Jesus. Uh, Upon Shammai's death in 30 AD, uh, after the crucifixion, and I've always said, look at the dates that these things happened. Shammai died in 30 AD. What else happened in 30 AD? Uh, What else happened in 30 AD? It's sort of like, it's like Herod the Great died the year that he directed the slaughter of the innocents trying to get rid of Jesus Christ. He died that year. Okay? So, Shammai died in 30 AD after, after the crucifixion of Jesus, the same year. However, though he was succeeded by Gamaliel, Shammai's followers still controlled the Sanhedrin throughout the rest of the Sanhedrin's life. The Gamaliel, who was lenient and gentle just as his grandfather Hillel was, did not really control the Sanhedrin. The confrontational attitude towards Gentiles of the um, Shemites, the, the school of Shemai and the Acolytes, directly led to the Jewish rebellion and the destruction by the Romans of Jerusalem and the temple. And with that final judgment of Judaism, the surviving Jews reverted to Hillelism. It's what we still know today in Judaism. 
The school of Shammai died out. The school of Hillel continues to this day. A famous Hebrew writer in the late 1800s commenting on the state of Judaism and the law said, a man is not half bad who does three quarter of his duty. Okay? That's right in line with Hillel's thinking. A man is not half bad who does three quarters of his duty. But there's one other thing. Jewish scholars to this day say that when the Messiah comes back, and we already know he has, that he will be more like the school of Shammai than the school of Hillel. He will be strict. He will be one who insists on keeping the law. And I really thought about that, you know, when I think about the Messiah that, who did come back already, that they're still waiting for. Because God, unlike Hillel, requires 100% keeping of the law for salvation through the law. And this is the point. If you're going to rely on the law for your salvation, you have to keep it 100%. James, the brother of John, sums up the Jewish view of the law in James 2.10 where he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of the law. But the Messiah came. The Messiah came. And what did he say? He said, I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And by fulfilling the law, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are justified by the perfect righteousness in the keeping of the law by our Lord. And that's a good thing because we're as incapable of keeping the law, the whole law, as was Hillel, as was Shammai, as was Gamaliel, and as was even the Apostle Paul. We cannot keep it, but Jesus kept it for us. And by placing our faith in his righteousness, we stand righteous before God, though we cannot keep the law. Let's close in prayer.